If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, open them up to the book of 1 Corinthians. We are continuing our series as we walk through 1 Corinthians. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and we have 23 verses to try to cover today. So I'm going to go quickly through this, and we're going to get you out on time, but you're going to have to hang in there and listen fast. Is that a deal? Can you do that for me? All right. Let's just go through it. We're going to truck through. All right, meat and potatoes today. No frills. We're just getting straight to the text. Let's look and see what it says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Starts off and it says in verse 1, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready for it, for you are still of the flesh For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not merely being human? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, we pray that today you would speak to us through your word. Father, I pray that your spirit would just convict us in ways that we need to grow closer to you. And Lord, that you would give us the courage and the grace and the strength to pursue you with all of our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right, as we've looked at this, we went through chapter two. As we went through chapter two, we have already trudged through the divisions that took place. We've already talked about the worldly wisdom versus the godly wisdom. And in chapter two, we talked about how you can know God's wisdom, true wisdom, by looking at the revelation of God, which is given to us through the Spirit. So how are you going to be truly wise in this world? You're going to be truly wise in this world by relying on this book, relying on God's foundation, his revelation, which was given to us through the spirit and the Holy Spirit, which lives within you, guiding you to help you understand the book, to convict you of your sins, to live the Christian life. Now in chapter three, Paul continues some of these arguments and you can see in this very first section, chapter three, verses one through four, he talks about being infants in Christ or being babes in Christ. He starts off here and he says, but I brothers... So he's addressing the entire congregation there at Corinth. So this would apply to all of us. It's not just the guys in the room, although the guys may be a little more sinful than the girls in the room, but it applies to all of us, right? And so all of us need to pay attention to what's coming. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people. Now, in the previous two chapters, we had this distinction between natural man and the Christian man. Here what we see in chapter three is he's gonna make a little different distinction between the Christian man, the spiritual person who walks by the spirit. Remember, we looked at Romans eight also, walking by the flesh versus walking by the spirit. The spiritual man's gonna walk by the spirit and then he's gonna make a distinction between people of the flesh or the natural man, but not a lost person here. He's talking about somebody who has actually been saved, but is still living in the flesh. The flesh rules over them. It has the desires of the flesh, and that's how they live their life. And so he says here, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food. Now, if you have ever been around babies, how many of you have been around babies? You got brothers and sisters and things of that nature. You were a baby at one time. When you're around babies, babies go through this process of learning to eat. And as they learn to eat, you know, milk is something they can do pretty early on. They don't have to know a lot. But when you first start trying to give them food, the texture of it is weird because all they're used to is milk and they don't like the texture because they haven't learned to have an appetite for the really good stuff like chili cheeseburgers. You know, you just can't, you can't give a baby a chili cheeseburger. They don't know what to do with it. And that's great because that means I get to eat more chili cheeseburgers. And so even my son now loves packets. 
he, because the consistency of the packets is more liquidy and it's not, it's now one day when he gets older, he's going to be a meat eater. He's going to like meat because he's my son. But at this point in time, he likes milk. He likes that consistency of soft stuff. And so, and he also likes chocolate. So I guess that doesn't hold true for everything. But you get my point here is that when we are first babes, we don't start out eating raw steaks. We don't dive into the deep meat or to the things of that nature. When we first start out, we start out as babes in Christ. We start out drinking the milk. And here's what it says. He says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready, past tense. But then here comes the condemnation. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. Here's my first application to you. You may be here and you may have come to Cedarville. And honestly, you may not even know why you came to Cedarville. You, You may have been at junior jam, or you may have been to a conference, or you may have just shown up and thought, eh, here's a school, it's close, we'll go here. If you're here and you're a babe in Christ, that's okay, as long as you don't leave here a babe in Christ. If you're here and you're still working on the very basics, you're still working on what does it mean to be saved, and what it means to be saved is that there's a time in your life where you've recognized your need for a savior, your own sinfulness, you've repented of your sins, you put your faith and trust in Christ, and you said, I want to be on Jesus's team, not playing for the devil's team anymore. And you're going to be saved at the point that you repent of your sins, put your faith and trust in him. But that doesn't mean you're automatically going to start living like a Christian. There are things that you have to do to learn, to grow, to progress past the milk. And those things are to have a personal quiet time. What do I mean by quiet time? Does that mean you sit in the corner with a cap on and stare at it? No, what I mean by quiet time is a time where you get alone with God. You don't have all the distractions of the world. You're reading your Bible. You're looking for that godly wisdom of chapter two through his revelation. You're reading the Bible to try to see what it will say to your life. You're spending time praying to God, saying, God, here are my concerns. Here are my fears. Here are the things I need to know about. You're letting God speak to you so that God can speak to your life. You're trying to be spiritually discerning of what is good and what is evil. In the Hebrews, it talks about being babes in Christ as well. And it says, for some of you have not been mature, Concerning for a long time between that which is spiritually good and that which is spiritually evil. What I want for all of you here at Cedarville is to be mature in the Lord so that you understand what the Bible says, so that you understand how to apply it to your life, so that you understand what is good and what is bad. Now, why do I want you to be mature in the Lord? Is it just so that you can pass your New Testament or Old Testament test? No. It's because the devil is trying to tear you down. The devil is trying to take away your joy. The devil is trying to make sure you do nothing good for Jesus Christ. And if you are spiritually mature, you're going to be able to discern the temptations that would destroy you and to walk away from those temptations through the power of the Spirit and to live a life that makes a difference for Christ. Here, what he's saying to the people in the Corinth is he's saying, you were babes in Christ. Even now, you're not ready for the meat. And he condemns them and he says, you're still of the flesh. For there's still jealousy and strife among you. Are you not of the flesh behaving in only a human way? You say, well, I'm struggling. I don't know how to do this. It's because in a human way, all by yourself, without the power of the Spirit, you can't do the things of God that need to be done. And so it's through the power of the Spirit. So what that means is we have to get rid, guys, like me, if you have these struggles, you have to get rid of that mentality that says, I can do this all by myself. That man on an island mentality that says, bring on the world and I'll take care of it. You cannot live the Christian life that way. 
You live the Christian life on your knees, asking for God to give you the power of the Spirit so that you can overcome temptation, so that you can overcome the evil things of the world. We don't behave only in a human way. We behave in a spiritual way, looking to God's revelation, looking to His Spirit. For when one says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Here's another application for you. You're, you're all going to go out of Cedarville. You're going to get involved in local churches because that's what you need to do. Jesus died for the local church, shed his blood for the local church, the local churches where we do ministry. So you're going to go out, you're going to be engaged as engineers, you're going to be engaged as school teachers, you're going to be nurses, you're going to be all sorts of different careers and vocations. But you need to be engaged in the local church doing ministry. When you do, be careful not to have this happen to you. Be careful that you don't walk into a local church and you don't immediately start looking for personalities and saying, oh, I really like this guy better than this guy because he's funnier. We don't engage in worshiping personalities. Paul says that it's not that I'm a Paul or I'm a Apollos. It's we go and we look to see what we can do for the church, what we can do as a producer, not as a consumer. And when we go to that church, we try to get involved. We try to help. We try to encourage. We're not looking just to go find the most popular person. We're looking to go engage in ministry ourselves. And so some of you, as your long-term vision, you need to get in your head right now that God may be equipping you to be an engineer, but you may use those engineering abilities overseas in a third world country. God may be equipping you and giving you a passion to teach other people. And you may be going overseas to use that gift to teach English as a second language so you can be a missionary to share the gospel with other people. God may be setting you up to be an incredibly successful business person so that you can use that influence to take the gospel into those areas and to do what he wants you to do. Here he says, are you not being human? And then he moves into two analogies. The first analogy that he moves into is that of farming. What then is Apollos? What then is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. And here he says, Apollos, Paul, what are they? They're nothing more than servants. The word used here for servants is the word diakonos, and you'll hear in that word the word deacon, and you know from 1 Timothy 3, there's an office of deacon. That's not what he's talking about here is the office of deacon. That word can also just mean servant, but that means deacons are to be servants. That's one of their ministries is to serve so that the pastors can focus on prayer and the ministry of the word, and here he calls themselves servants. He says, we are to serve, and we are mere servants of God through whom you believed. You also remember in Matthew 25 that Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to serve. And one of the things that we need to go out doing is looking to serve other people, to serve those who believe. And it says, and we've got three different things that God does here, through whom you believed as the Lord assigns to each. So if you're going out and you're going into ministry, perhaps you're in our Bible school and you're going to go be a pastor. You can't worry about how many people God places underneath your watch. God assigns to each person those people that he wants to assign to them. And it says here with Paul and Apollos as the Lord assigned to each in verse five. Verse six, Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Now here's a great application for you. You're in your discipleship group. You're pouring into people and you're not seeing development happen. You go out and you witness to somebody at Walmart or at Taco Bell. I got to text some, some of our guys were at Taco Bell witnessing to people and they don't respond, what happens to us? 
If I witness to somebody and they don't respond, I tend to get pretty down, pretty frustrated. Lord, why didn't they respond? Why didn't they accept Christ? Was I not compelling enough? But what Paul is saying here is he's saying, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gives the growth. Sometimes when we share the gospel, when we share an encouraging word with somebody, when we do those things, we're merely planting seeds. And sometimes it takes multiple times of planting those seeds, of cultivating that soil of the heart, of watering, so that as we continue to do ministry, as we continue to share, we don't get frustrated if somebody doesn't accept the gospel. They're not rejecting us. They're rejecting God, and the Spirit is just using us to draw them closer to Himself. And so we continually do what we do without being frustrated, without also looking to our as though there's something magical about us so that we don't become prideful or puffed up and think, oh, this is my brilliance or my intellect or, or I can write a blog post that's gonna change the world or I can preach a sermon that's gonna change the world or, or my Twitter account is gonna make the world a better place. We don't become puffed up and prideful. We realize that one person plants, one person waters, but ultimately God and God alone is the one that gives the increase. And so whenever that happens, we give glory to God. We thank him for what he's done. We don't take the credit for ourselves. And so make sure that we look and realize that God is the one that assigns. God is the one that gives growth. And God is also the one that will give wages according to his labor. In verse nine, he who plants and he who waters are one. Why are they one? They're mere servants in the God's kingdom. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. I'll come back and touch on that again here in just a minute with the next analogy. In verse nine, For those of you who are in English here, Paul gives a great transition sentence. He combines his previous discussion, moves to his next discussion. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. And he transitions from talking about the farming analogy, then to moving toward an analogy on building. And when he does that, he goes into verse 10 and says, according to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Here we see a second analogy. It's that of a building. He says to us, according to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder. Uh, the word in the original language there is, is architect. It's where we get our English word from it, architecton. And so you can hear architect in here, but don't think that I'm drawing blueprints or that I'm writing the blueprints. What he really means here is it's like the construction foreman. It's like the person who is actually supervising all of the building here. And God has given me grace like a skilled master builder. And I laid a foundation is what Paul is saying. Someone else came and they built upon the foundation. And so immediately in your mind, you may be thinking, well, this just applies to those who are leaders in the church to those who are pastors in the church or teachers. But look at the shift he takes here. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. And then later on, he's gonna talk about each one's work will be revealed by fire for the day will disclose it. And so this applies to all of us as we look at how we do ministry in the gospel, how we minister for Christ, how we live our lives. And what we have to do is get out of a mentality where we think we hire professionals to go do the work. When I'm at home, if, if an air conditioner messes up, Who's going to fix it? 
Certainly not me. I don't know anything about air conditioners. And so I'll call an expert, and the expert will come fix the air conditioner. When my car tears up, if it's something minor, maybe I could tweak with it, but if it's something major, I'm taking it to a mechanic. The mechanic's going to have to work on the car. I'm not going to be able to do anything major to the vehicle, especially now with all the computerized parts that are in it. But what we don't need to do is get in the mentality that we leave spiritual service only to those who are preachers and only to those who are paid missionaries overseas. We have to understand that all of us, every one of us, we're called to be God's servants. We're called to be great commissioned Christians. We're called to share our faith. And so you in your life, if you live your life and you say, oh, that's not for me because I'm not paid to do that, you're missing out on the eternal reward. It doesn't mean you all need to be preachers or teachers. God has called you to the vocational calling he wants you to have. And whatever he has called you to do, you need to do that with excellence for his glory. But you don't need to go into a mentality of, this is what I do and that's what they do. We all do ministry. We all pour into each other. We all work with other people to help them grow in godliness. If you're single, you have the opportunity and time to do amazing things, to use that singleness, the state that you're in right now, to go on mission trips, to go on short-term things, to go overseas, to be able to take up at a moment's notice and go help somebody because you don't have all the responsibilities of a family. If you have a family and God blesses you, you have an obligation to lead your family in a way that rears children up to understand they can make a difference for Christ as well. And so we teach them the fundamentals of the faith. We challenge them to do more for Christ. We lead our homes in a spiritual way. We understand that ultimately we are responsible for our children's development and not anybody else. So we don't delegate that off to a daycare or to a school system or to a church or to a youth group or to a children's group. That's ultimately our responsibility. We understand that we are responsible for our spiritual growth, digging into God's word, seeking God, seeking the Holy Spirit so that we grow to be more like Christ. And we don't delegate that off to somebody else just to fill our spiritual cup on Sunday. It's our obligation to become mature believers. It's our obligation to reach this world for Christ. And so ultimately, what I want to say to you is don't waste your life. Don't come to school, get a degree, go get a job, make a lot of money, have a big house, sit there and die. And look back on your life and say, where's my house? Where's my money? Let's change the world. I want to say to you, let's do something remarkable because if all 3,000 of us in this room sold out to Jesus Christ, seeking to do what we could do for him, if we were all sold out, we could change the world. Each one of us with our relationships, with the places that God's going to send us, we can make a difference for him. He says, according to a skilled master builder, I laid, let each one take care of how he builds upon it. And verse 11 is important here. He says, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. There's your exclusivity of the gospel right there in a different passage. You can't lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. There is no other foundation. If you think ministry is entertainment, that's not what ministry is all about. If you think ministry is just drawing a big crowd, that's not what ministry is all about. Ministry is about laying on the proper foundation of Jesus Christ. It's about walking through life intentionally with people with a gospel focus in our lives so that we impact other people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, or precious stones, wood, hay, or stubble, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test it. Now, what we're talking about here is commonly known as the Bema Seat Judgment. All right, now, let me try to be clear and not confuse everybody. There's gonna be a judgment that takes place that determines who's a believer and who's not a believer. This is not that judgment. This is a judgment that's called the Bema Seat Judgment. It's for Christians to determine whether your work is gonna last or whether your work is not gonna last. Now, this passage is one of the passages that Catholics use to talk about purgatory and the existence of purgatory. But if you read through this passage, there is no purgatory or refinement of the individual here. It's adjudication of works and whether your works are good or whether your works are bad. And so this is not a passage that supports purgatory. The other passage they get for that, Second Maccabees, and we don't believe in the Apocrypha, and so we don't even have that in our Bible. And so here's another passage they would use, but don't let that confuse you. This is the Bema Seat Judgment. If you want to look up some other passages, Second Corinthians 5.10 talks about this as well, and Romans 14.10-12 talk about the Bema Seat as well. Here's what the picture is of what's happening. You have six different elements. You have gold, silver, and precious stones, and then you have things like wood, hay, and stubble. Now, if you think about building with those different materials, which one's going to be more valuable than the other? It's the gold, right? Everybody wants a little gold, silver, precious stones. Those are going to cost you a lot more. So if you're going to build a temple or a great temple, perhaps in the Old Testament time, you would build it with gold, silver, or precious stones. If you're going to build a house, you would build your house with wood for the framing You might use the straw and some mud to create your walls, and you would use the leftovers then to put on the roof. Perhaps this is the roof where they lifted the roof up and brought the paralytic down and delivered him to Jesus. It would have been a roof of a similar nature here as to what we see of straw. Uh, And so here you see that some of this is expensive and costly. Some of this is not. It doesn't cost you very much. I want to say to you that ministry should be costly. It shouldn't just be easy. If you're looking to pour into somebody else's life, if you're looking to walk through life with them, that's not gonna be easy. It's gonna cost you something. It's gonna cost you time. It's gonna cost you some heartache. It's gonna cost you some trouble. It's gonna be costly. But not only do we see that it's costly, we also see the permanence of what's mentioned here. You have gold, you have silver, and you have precious stones. What happens when those go through a fire? Gold is purified when it goes through a fire. Silver would be purified and it would last through a fire. Precious stones would last through a fire. Wood, hay, and stubble are all gonna be completely burned up and there's gonna be nothing left. And what this passage is telling us is that each one is gonna have his work examined, what he has done. And if any work survives that has been built on the foundation, he's gonna receive a reward. You say, well, I don't like that. How does that work? Well, we understand that Jesus tells a parable And in his parable, he talks about the talents. And some people who use their talents well receive more talents. And those who don't use their talents, but they bury them, they lose their talents. And so part of what he's saying here is God has given you all talents. If you use those talents to use them well, there's a reward that's coming. Now, how many of you like rewards? Everybody in here likes rewards, right? We all like to receive prizes. We all like to receive good grades. And so that's one of the reasons we study hard. We all like to receive trophies and medals. And that's one reason we compete hard. We all like to have commendation from our parents. And so we try to work hard to please them as well. And so here, what Jesus is saying to us through the scripture, what Paul is writing is that if you will work and you build on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, it may cost you something, but it's more permanent than the wood, the hay, or the straw. It's going to be tested. 
And whatever survives is going to receive a reward. Now, what's the fire here? The day will disclose it revealed by fire. We don't know for sure. He doesn't elaborate. He doesn't tell us exactly what it may be. But probably what it's talking about here is the fire, which is Jesus's eyes. In Revelation 1.14 and in Revelation 2.18, you see Jesus's eyes described as fire. Now, how many of you in here have that dad that has that stare? Anybody? Yeah, my, my dad's got that stare. I don't know if I have that stare or not. You'll have to ask Rachel when you see her at one of the soccer games or something. But when, when my, I would come in and I would begin to try to get away with something, my dad could look at me and he could get this focused laser look as if his head were coming off of his shoulders and zooming in closer and closer and closer to me. And his eyes would lock and I would immediately begin to think in my head, he already knows. He already knows what happened. I, there's no way I hide it. He knows. Now, he didn't really know, but he had this stare that told me, I'm already busted. I'm already in trouble. Jesus already knows. He knows our motivation. He knows why we did what we did. He knows what we did. He knows everything we did. And so that stare from Jesus will try us, and whatever lasts, we'll receive a reward, and whatever doesn't last, will be burned up and will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. I just want to say to you, your work will be tested. There will be a reward for the things that you do for God, and that reward will last for all eternity. We talked about in chapter two, listening to the right preacher, because commercials preach a message to you that tell you materialism and possessions. What I'm trying to tell you is live your life for eternity. Make sure that as you're going through this life, you're not forgetting the things that are going to stand the test of time that are going to last for all eternity. That's where true value is. True value is the things that money can't buy and death can't take away. That's where you're going to find your true value. Here it also transitions. He goes to verse 16, and we'll see in verse 16, he gives two warnings as he closes out here. The first warning is, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Now, later on, as we go through 1 Corinthians, we're gonna see him talk about singular you temple, meaning that the Holy Spirit lives within you. But in this passage, he's talking about the plural you temple. And so where he says plural you, he's saying all of the people in Corinth, you are the temple of God. And the word he uses here for the temple of God is naos, it's not heron. And naos in the Septuagint reflects the holy of holies, not the entire temple complex. So hang with me here and get the importance of this. He is saying that you plural, church at Corinth, you as broken and as messed up as you may be, you, if you're a believer, you're still part of that church, you are the temple of God. And not just the outer complex of that temple, but you as the church are the holy of holies, the very dwelling place of God. Because when Jesus offered his sacrifice, the veil between that was torn from top to bottom because the sacrifice was the perfect sacrifice. And there's no longer a separation between us and God. There's no longer a need for sacrifice. There's no longer a need for priests to offer prayers to us. You can pray and talk to God and communicate to him directly. You can offer your thoughts directly to God and God will speak to you. This church is the temple of God. Now here's the warning. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. It's a pretty strong warning. Let me just say to you, as you get out in local churches, you need to be in a local church now 
But as you move out into leadership and producing in local churches, as you graduate and all, be very careful to cause divisions in a local congregation. Hear Paul saying to him, you are the temple of God. He's already talked about the divisions of saying, I'm a Paul, I'm of Apollos. He says, if anyone destroys this temple, God will destroy him. And we could think back in this, and maybe we think back to Ananias and Sapphira who offered and sold their land, but they only brought part of the money back, and God destroyed them, and God killed them right there on the spot. And maybe we think back to the Old Testament, and we think about Uzzah who steadied the ark with his hand because he thought his hand was holier than the ground that the ark would have hit, and God struck him dead because he violated God's law. Or maybe we think back to Nadab and Abihu there in Leviticus 10 when they offered strange fire before the Lord, and God killed them, and then God said, don't even and mourn their death or I will be angry with you again. And oftentimes we look at this and we take the church far too lightly and we take what happens in the church far too lightly and we cause divisions or we seek to rip apart the church. And here's the warning that Paul is giving when Paul says to him, if you destroy the temple, God will destroy you. Take this concern to heart. Make sure that that's not you. And then he ends with a second caution. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. The word for fool there is moros. That's where we get our word moron. Nobody wants to be a moron, right? But here what Paul is saying is it's better to be a fool for Christ. It's better to be a moron for Christ than it is to deceive ourselves with worldly wisdom. For the wisdom of this word is folly with God. And then he quotes two Old Testament passages. The first one is Job 5.13. For it's written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. It's like the imagery of a hunter reaching out and catching a prey. And he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And then he says the second context here, Psalms 94.11. The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise and they are futile. We think we get away with things. We think we can be alone or our thoughts that God won't know them. But God knows our thoughts even before they're on our tongue. And he says here that that wisdom, he will catch them and he will snare them in it. So in verse 21, it says, let no one boast in men. He circles back around and closes this chapter up by saying, don't boast in men. Don't boast in Paul. Don't boast in Apollos. Don't boast in any other men, but that you should only boast in the Lord. Verse 22, he says, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or present or future, all are yours. He says, you don't belong to Paul or Apollos. Paul and Apollos are servants of God. You are servants with God. We're joint heirs with God. And so through that, everything belongs to us through Christ who is God's. But let's not miss this last part and then I'm done. He says, do not deceive yourself. I have a concern. Concern for some of you. Frankly, you're far smarter than I am. You have a higher IQ than I do. You're intelligent. You're articulate, you're young, you have your whole life ahead of you. You may be in the honors program, you may be in debate, you may be absolutely brilliant. But the moment you start trusting in your brilliance and your intellect, instead of in God and his grace, you have deceived yourself to think you are the creator and not the creation. As smart as you may be, as intellectual as you may be, 
as great a writer or thinker as you may be, you may be able to defeat anybody in a debate, but the moment you start looking to your own wisdom and not looking to God's grace who provided you that wisdom, you have deceived yourself, and the scripture is full of warnings not to deceive yourself. And so may I just say to you, as you come here and as you learn, and as some of you go on and you get master's degrees, and as some of you go further and you get doctorate degrees, don't ever trust in the worldly wisdom which comes from inside here. Trust in the revelation of God which comes through scripture. Trust in the grace that God has given you. Trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. He is the foundation. And that's how you will have a successful life. It's a temptation. You read a new book, you learn a new fact, you like it. You learn a lot of facts. You remember them well. Next thing you know, you're puffed up with pride because you think you have all the answers to all the world's problems. And here Paul says, the wisdom of the world is folly. He catches the wise in their craftiness and the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, I pray for our students here at Cedarville. Pray for the faculty and for the staff. Lord, I pray that we would never become puffed up in our own knowledge, that we would never seek worldly wisdom. But God, I pray that you would help us to find glory only in boasting in the Lord. Father, for those that may be here struggling today, struggling with temptations of the flesh, struggling with becoming mature believers, struggling with decisions of right and wrong, Father, I pray that you would Help them to have the strength to reject those things which are evil and to do those things which are good. Put good friends around them to guide them and direct them. And Father, help them to live a life that changes the world for Jesus Christ. God, we do this not for our glory, but because you are worthy. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.